Amen. Well, good morning. I want to say a particular welcome to those of you who are new here today. My name is Alex, and we're delighted if you're joining us here for the very first time, especially uh, if this is your first time ever, first time in a long time in a church setting. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We're so glad that you're here with us, whether you're in person or online. What we are all about is really straightforward. It's just about connecting, connecting people to God, connecting people to each other, so together we can engage our world for good. We hope you experience a little bit of all those things here this morning. This is uh, week two of our series, Getting Ready for Christmas, called The, the Hope of Glory, and we're focusing in these couple weeks all about the who of Christmas. Because so much of Christmas is about the what, right? Like when you were a little kid, people asked you, what do you want for Christmas? Uh, as adults, what are you doing for Christmas? And if you've got a, if you're a mom, you've got a to-do list a mile long of what's. Amen, moms? Yes? I feel, yes, I see you. Yeah, yeah. Like all these what's, right? All the things we have to do. For, and a lot of them are good, right? Great, wonderful things. But here's the problem when Christmas is all about the what's. When Christmas is all about the what's, we're set up for the blahs. Because... The what's go away fast, right? Get put back in a box or they break or whatever. Uh, but when our Christmas preparation is more about the who than the what, that's when we unlock the power of Christmas. That's where real, real joy is, real peace is, uh, real lasting life is that goes way past all the what's of Christmas. So we're camping out in this one passage of Colossians chapter 1 for these three weeks, drilling down into the who of Christmas. Who has God sent and what has that person done here at Christmas time? Now, today we're talking about the problem that God is solving at Christmas. When, when, I, when I first got here, one of our uh, really strong leaders, uh, he was great at asking the question in meetings, what's the problem we're trying to solve? Because you've been in meetings or conversations where you've got a new idea or a new thing floating around, and you've got another new idea and another new idea and another new idea. Before you know it, you're like miles away from the reason why you started the conversation to begin with. And so he would co come back regularly. What's the problem we're trying to solve? What's the problem we're trying to solve? What's the problem we're trying to solve? And now, when we, when we talk about Christmas, when it comes to Christmas, those of us who know and love this story, we have a problem. And here's the problem that we have for those of us who know and love the story. The problem that God is solving at Christmas is not the problem anyone wants him to solve. Like, if you took a survey of all of Chatham County and beyond, right, people just outside Chatham County and said, top five problems you would love God to solve in the world in Christmas, what God is doing at Christmas wouldn't be on anyone's top five list. In fact, even those of us who know and love God, like, uh, if you think about the top five problems you would love for God to solve right now in your life, like, or in the world, if you come, come a couple quick things that you would love for God to fix, initially it doesn't look like what God is doing with Christmas solves any of those problems. Now, here's what people have discovered, just like you and me, for centuries. That if we are willing to sort of surrender our problems over to God and be open to what problem he's actually solving... And be open to the solution he offers us in the scriptures. Here's what we find. That if we're willing to allow God to solve the problem that he wants to solve in his way, what we find is that it actually gathers up all the problems we have, all the challenges you're facing, and it brings new life, redemptive power, healing into those problems. Whether the things that you care about are like peace in the Middle East or peace with your mother-in-law or peace with your grown kids or a situation at work or your medical challenges. All those problems, all those challenges get gathered up. And what God has actually done at Christmas time. What's the problem God is solving with Christmas? That's the passage we're going to look at today. That's what we're going to look at today as we drill down into Colossians 1. We're going to look at verses 19 through 23. Just say that chunk of this passage as we look at the problem that God is solving with Christmas. And in Colossians 1.19, uh, Paul makes this pretty audacious statement. Paul says this. 
God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. That him is the son. That's Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's what, that's what God is doing there with the Christmas story. Now, there's a problem for the people who first, hear these, who first hear these words. And the problem for the people in the first century, the people in Colossae, they, they, uh, they were a Roman, a Roman colony. And here's the problem that they face when they hear these words. They've heard this before. Everyone in Rome had heard words like this before because here's how Rome worked. You had a Caesar. And the way that Caesar claimed power was the Caesars claimed to be divine. They claimed to be the son of God or the sons of God or the offspring of the divine. Over and over and over again, the ways that Caesars justified being bullies, I'm divine. I can do what I want, right? Because that's what people who have power do, right? How many of you have known someone who had power and loved to tell everybody about it? Loved to show it, right? Demonstrate it any chance that they got, right? You've had a boss like that or a manager like that. Some of you have, have wrestled with that, right? People get power. They use it in all kinds of bullying ways. So when the people in Colossians are hearing Paul's letter that there's someone who's full of God, they're like, here we go again, more propaganda. Another Caesar coming to bully people. But here's what Jesus is doing. Jesus takes the Caesar story, he turns it upside down. Here's someone with all power, all divine right, all divine power. What does he do with that power? He serves. He doesn't demand to be served. He serves others. He hangs out with the poor, the marginal, the, the people who are out, outcast, ostracized. He brings power and beauty and grace and love to people that everyone else overlooks. He doesn't build an empire. He doesn't bully people. He doesn't do any of the things that the other Caesars who are claiming to be divine and sons of God do with that claim to divinity. And at the end of his story, when Caesar kills Jesus, it sure, like, sure looks like Caesar's way to wield power won, right? Did Caesar win? Because it looked like that's what happened on the cross. But it turns out that what Jesus is doing is showing us a totally different way to be human. A totally different way to use power. Whatever power authority you have or that we've been given. He shows us the way that we wield power is through fully surrendering it to God the Father. And that's what he's doing at every single turn. Even when he surrenders all his power to the Romans, to the cross. And it turns out. That what God was doing in Jesus and what Jesus is doing with all the fullness of the divinity wasn't setting up an empire. He wasn't set up to be a bully. He wasn't going to conquer people and expand people. What he's going to do is he's going to lay down his life to forgive the whole world, to redeem the whole world. And actually, at the end of it all, you know what he declares? He says he has all authority in heaven and on earth. He's got more power than Caesar because he didn't use power like Caesar did. See, it turns out Caesars are a dime a dozen. Nothing special about Caesar. Bullies exist in every generation, right? Bullies in every generation, every era has people who grab for power, grab for power, and try to justify it any possible, they, any possible way they can. Caesars are boring. Nothing special about Caesar. There's only one Jesus. Only one person uses all power the way that he did. 2,000 years later, a few of us kind of know a little bit about the Caesars who claim to be divine. 2,000 years later... Here's the song we just sang about the actual divinity of Jesus. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. No one is singing this about Caesar today. Today, millions upon millions and millions of people are singing this about Jesus, the true son of God, the incarnate deity, the one who's come to put God in the flesh and show us what God looks like, and show us what it looks like to use authority, power, in ways that God designed for us to use it. 
Now, why has God gone to all this trouble? Right? What's the problem God's solving by putting on flesh and kind of living and walking among us? Here's what Paul says. He says, well, through him, what God's doing is this. Reconciling to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. My, uh, my senior in high school, I got a senior in high school, and uh, she is taking one of the coolest classes I've ever heard in a high school kind of whatever, high, in a high school setting. The, the title of her class, get this, is Epidemics as History Makers. Isn't that cool? How epidemics, black plague, bubonic plague, cholera, has shaped governments and societies and changed the course of history. So fascinating. I totally am geeked out by this. Epidemics as history makers, right? Okay, I'm a nerd. Okay, fine, 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 fine. But every now and then I'd be like, Zoe, tell me more about this class. What are you, what are you talking about? And one of the things that she, she says is that when epidemics first break out, like a, a classic pattern for all epidemics throughout history, when epidemics first break out, people don't know what's causing them, and so they do things that make the epidemic worse, not better. So, for example, cholera. We've had seven cholera outbreaks since the 19th century. And, and, and cholera, you die through dehydration. And the way that they initially treated cholera was using castor oil, which makes you more dehydrated, which just made the epidemic worse. People didn't understand the problem. They rushed to the wrong solution. And then even when the right solution gets sort of run out, it goes against conventional wisdom, that people deny it. And no, 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 that can't be it. That can't be it. It's met with significant resistance until over time the correct sort of um, remediation uh, is worked out. People don't understand the problem, so they use the wrong solution. In fact, sometimes the solutions that they try to employ only make things worse. This is exactly what the first century Christians are up against and the 21st century Christians are up against as we talk about the problem that God is solving, this epidemic of a problem that God is solving with Jesus. And Paul summarizes it this way. He says that you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. Alienated from God and were enemies. No one in the 21st century would describe themselves this way, or very few would describe themselves this way. Your neighbors, your family members, your friends who aren't Christians wouldn't describe themselves this way. No one in the first century would describe themselves that way either, right? The first century, all the Jewish people especially, they had a agenda. They had a picture. They're like, we're God's people, and they knew what the Messiah was supposed to do. They had a problem that God, they wanted God to solve. Get rid of the Romans. They had conquered their land, and they wanted their land back. So that's the problem they wanted God to solve. So when Paul, who writes this letter to the Colossians, rejects Jesus initially. He rejects Jesus initially because here's the deal. Messiah is supposed to rescue us from Rome. If Rome is still here and Messiah is gone, it must not have been the right Messiah. He rejects Jesus as the Messiah because he doesn't fit his agenda for what God should be doing. Ever do that before? Ever struggle when God doesn't match your agenda? Fit your plan? Fix the problem you want him to fix? But then Paul has a dramatic encounter with Jesus. And he says, he goes to the desert for three years, and he rethinks his whole theology. He rethinks his whole understanding of God and what God's up to. And he comes back to the conclusion that all the first century Jesus followers come to as they're rethinking what problem God's solving. And the, and the conclusion that they come to is this, that the cross is God's solution to a problem they didn't think was that important. That the cross was God's solution to a problem that wasn't on the radar, wasn't that important. That is alienation from God that required needs that needed reconciliation. See, 
All of Jesus' initial followers are shocked when he submits himself to the cross. They're even more shocked when they find him raised from the dead when he comes to meet them, like a resurrected body. And then he ascends back up to God the Father, and they look around and they say, all right, so something just happened that no one expected. Messiah, this, guy, this guy claimed to be Messiah. He died. He was raised again in the new life, never to die again. Goes up to God, have, God, God, God in heaven, and Rome is still here. So they ask the question, maybe we're asking the wrong question. Maybe we're looking for the wrong solution. What problem was God solving? What problem was God actually solving? And they go back and they look at the Old Testament, all the promises, all the religious rites and rituals, especially the sacrificial system, and, and they, they realize that all those things have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That what he's doing, his death and resurrection, is fulfillment of all these things that have gone before. And so they reconsider their whole understanding of God and what God's purposes are in the world in and through the lens of Jesus. The problem is we've been alienated from God, separated from God by sin, and that God needs to rescue us. And just like People who initially came down with cholera didn't understand what the problem was, and they treated it the wrong way. And then they rejected initial kind of attempts to correct the, the, uh, the way that people were treating it. So too do people in the first century and 21st century not understand the problem, and they reject the, they reject the way that the Christians declare God has made his solution available to us. This morning, the scriptures tell us bad news and good news, that we were alienated from God and that we are in need of reconciliation. And that what God has done in Jesus, why God put on flesh, what Christmas is all about, is pointing ahead to Easter, the work of Easter, to reconcile all things. In fact, here's how you might say it, that reconciliation releases God's healing power into our lives and into the world. To be reconciled with God, that's how we solve the problem. That's how repair happens. That's how restoration happens. In a world full of all kinds of problems, all kinds of things that have gone sideways that are not as we would like for them to be, whether that's in your personal life or in the world around us, reconciliation with God is what unlocks God's grace, God's truth, God's love into our own lives and into the world. And so when Paul writes that we're enemies in our minds because of our evil behavior, that is that we're resistant to God solving that problem, that we're resistant to God's plan to heal and restore the world and to redeem our stories. But my friends, here's the deal. There is no redemption in our lives or in the world apart from reconciliation with God. There's no final redemption, no final healing of all the brokenness in this world apart from us being reconciled with God because reconciliation is the key that unlocks God's repair into the world. I was talking with someone this past week about this passage, and uh, she shared with me a very powerful story that she's given me permission to share here. She shared that a couple of years ago, she had a really, really, really hard, nasty miscarriage. And she was so upset at God and so upset with the whole God thing, she walked away from God, walked away from church. She said, in my mind, I decided I was not going to be God's friend. I was resistant to God. I was mad at God. I didn't want to have anything to do with God or God's people, as well-intentioned as it might be. I didn't want anything to do with it. She said, I was an enemy of God in my mind. I dug in. And she thought she could get better without God. In fact, she, eventually she found herself to be pregnant again. And she's like, okay, here it is. The, the redemption of my story. Like, I, I've got another baby. I'm going to have another baby to, to make up for the loss I just experienced. I'm going to be fine. I don't need God. I've got this other baby coming. And then this baby was born. And the baby was beautiful and wonderful and delightful. And she was handed this baby. And to her utter shock and dismay, she didn't immediately feel better. Didn't fix the problem. She was looking for redemption without God, and she couldn't find it. Even in something as good as a baby, as beautiful and life-giving and wonderful as a baby, 
She couldn't find it. And so she began a long journey of slowly re-engaging a relationship with God, being reconciled with God, that she might experience the redemption of her painful story. Because there is no redemption of our stories apart from reconciliation with God. And part of what we want to do is we want to figure out ways to, to jury-rig or kind of work out redemption, make things better in our own strength, in our own power. But often the things that we try to do, just like cholera, only make things worse or only sort of temporarily put a band-aid over top of things. They don't get to the core of the problem, that we are alienated from God in need of reconciliation with God. There is no redemption apart from this. Now, one of the problems we have with this, of course, is that many of us think of ourselves as pretty good folks, right? Like, I'm a pretty good person. I mean, I do some bad things here and there, but I'm pretty awesome. And of course, God wants to hang out with me because I'm pretty awesome. I mean, that's who I am. I'm pretty awesome. Now, this isn't all of you. Some of you labor deeply under voices of shame and guilt and condemnation. I'm going to deliver Christmas to you in about five minutes. Hang on, okay? But for, for, for most of us, for many of us, of course, I'm okay with God because I'm pretty great. I'm pretty cool. All right, let me ask you this. Okay, this is one of my favorite illustrations. Those of us who think we're pretty awesome, and of course God would like us, if, if we took every thought you've had for the last 24 hours and put it on the big screen here and on the live stream, how good would you look then? That's just one day, 24 hours. What if we did? What if we did the whole last week? What if we did all 2023? Enemies in our minds, every jealous thought, every petty thought, every lustful thought, every greedy thought, every petty, every, like all the different things, right? Every proud thought, enemies in our minds. That results in behavior, right? Actions that we sometimes act on those things. God sees every thought, knows every action, and he says, listen, all this is creating separation between me and you. Enemies in our minds because of our evil behavior. And he's come to reconcile and restore all things. And so, my friends, this is the invitation. The invitation from this passage, this is the, this is the why behind the who of Christmas. The call is that we might be reconciled to God, restore relationship to God, and live out of that reconciliation with God. That is the call for all of us who haven't yet received this, this offer of reconciliation from God is to receive it, to walk in it, to, to recognize, oh yeah, here's the problem, and here's the solution, and I'm willing to receive what God has done about it. And then if you're already a Jesus person, already a Christian, the invitation then is to be an instrument of reconciliation. That is, wherever you go, that you might bring this grace, this beauty, this power to a broken and weary world to make it more beautiful, less broken. That you might be deputized to be an instrument of God's reconciling presence, his grace, his mercy, his truth, his justice, his love. Everywhere you go, the spirit of the Lord is given to those of us who believe to go and be instruments of reconciliation that we might restore broken things. The invitation to all of us, come and be reconciled, come and live out of that reconciliation, be instruments of God's grace and mercy, his truth, his love, his justice, wherever he might send you. Now, as Paul drills down into what God has done in Jesus, he's got this beautiful suite of words. Look at these words he uses. It talks about how Jesus has reconciled all things and how God has healed all things and made peace and reconciled you. He uses that twice and then talks about being without blemish, free from accusation, and holy. And Paul starts with this big sweeping kind of promise that Jesus has reconciled to, to God all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now, all kinds of debates around what that means by, like, things in heaven and what's gone wrong and how bad it is and what does it mean that God's reconciling things in heaven. But the point is this, that there's all kinds of brokenness in the world and even in the spiritual world, and what God has done in Jesus is totally comprehensive, gathered up 
all the physical world and the spiritual world and reconciled and restored all things to himself. There's a great line in Joy to the World that talks about how Jesus has come to make God's blessings known far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found. That is, wherever the curse of sin and death has touched what God's created, the spiritual world or the physical world, he has come to restore and repair all things. This past week, we had someone in our church get diagnosed with cancer. Cancer is an expression of the curse. We look forward to the day when one day there'll be no more cancers. Amen? No more mourning. No more tears. No more anxious moments in the hospital. No more hard conversations. No more unproductive conflicts. No more broken family relationships. No more exploitation of people. We look forward to the day when God's blessings known are known and roll back the curse, every expression of the curse, far as it's found. In the meantime, reconciliation is a relational word, right? You only can be reconciled to people, between people. And so what the scriptures talk about, the way it talks about it is this, that what God has done is there's been an offense, right? So if you're an offended party, if someone talks about you behind your back, you are the one who's been aggrieved, and you're the one who can reconcile. You're the only one that can forgive and offer reconciliation to the person who talked about you behind your back. But that requires two parties, right? To be reconciled to someone requires both parties to be in agreement. So you can go to someone and say, hey, I heard you talk about me behind my back, and I forgive you, and I want to be reconciled. Let's talk about what just happened. And the person can say to you, I don't care. I didn't do anything wrong. I don't want anything to do with you. You've forgiven them. You've extended reconciliation to them. The other person has to receive it, has to accept it. So here's the good news of Christmas plus Easter. From God's side, every human being on the planet has been forgiven and reconciled. It just requires the yes from us to receive it. From God's side, he stands ready to pour grace and love and truth and mercy and forgiveness into every single human being. It just requires us having the faith to receive it. We just lit the faith candle today. I believe that God has done something in Jesus to reconcile and restore all things. And our job is simply to say yes to what God has already done. He's already done the hard work. He's already suffered, bled, and died to forgive you all your sins and everyone that you love, all their sins too. All we have to do is submit to it and Say yes and receive it by God's grace, God's mercy, and God's love. All people stand forgiven, and God stands ready to reconcile every single human being here on this planet. That is good news, great joy for all people. And Paul unpacks this with some really interesting words. He talks about how Jesus has come to make us holy without blemish and free from accusation. Now, here's the problem with holy. Holy is not a very cool word, right? Like, we have almost no positive uses of holy in our, in, our, in our pop culture, right? Holy is not a very cool word. It's not something people aspire to. What do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be holy. Like, no kid says that. What do, you, what do you want to do when you retire? I want to be holy, right? Like, that's not really like a goal, a life goal, right? But here's the thing. Here's what God knows. Here's what God knows. Sin is what made us miserable and separates us from God. So the only way for you to be eternally happy is for you to be perfectly holy. Sin is what makes us miserable, it's what's introduced death to the world. Sin is what kind of corrupts everything that's good and beautiful about this world. Sin is a thing that undoes God's good creation. So the only way for you and me to be eternally happy is for us to be perfectly holy, which is what God has done for us in Jesus. He's so committed to your eternal happiness. He's going to make you holy whether you want it or not. Whether that's a thing you aspire to or not. If you're willing to walk with Jesus, if you're willing to surrender to what he's done for us. He says, I'm going to make you Holy. We had a funeral here recently, someone who had a really, really, really messy, ugly life for a long, long time. And at the very end of it, the last decade or so, 
he came to faith in Jesus. And he wrestled over and over again, can God forgive me? Can God forgive me? Can God forgive me? Merry Christmas early, my friends. So those of you who wrestle with the same voices, he has already made you holy without blemish. You are free from accusation because you are in Christ Jesus whose voice is stronger than the voice of the accuser. And so if you're here this morning and you labor under voices of guilt, shame, and accusation, you have power in Jesus' name to tell the accusations and the accuser to shut up because Jesus is Lord. And he has come to wash away all sin. Every wrong you've done, real or imaginary, is washed away by the power and the blood of Jesus who has come to bring good news, great joy, all people who has come to reconcile and restore you and me into a relationship with the God of the universe. Through that reconciliation, he releases grace and mercy here, joy to the world. He has come to make his blessings known for as the curse is found. Today's wildly important take home. I'm just going to wrap this up. The problem of God's song at Christmas is the problem that no one thinks is that important but ultimately solves all problems. Like, the problem that God's solving at Christmas, right, this is the challenge, is the problem that no one thinks is all that important. It's not top on anyone's list, but it's the, pro- it's, the, it's the solution that solves all problems. No one in the first century thought that alienation from God was the most important problem. No one in the 21st century thinks that alienation from God is the most important problem. But yet, as we see, if we're willing to submit and surrender to God's work, what he's done in Jesus, it begins to work its way into all of our problems. Now, it's not a magic trick, right? Reconciliation is a relationship. It's not a magic trick. It's not like you say a few magic words and everything's better, everything's well. But what it is is a journey. It's a process. It's like following and working out. It's like physical therapy. You just keep working with the God who has come to redeem and restore all things, including especially you, to make you a man and woman after his own heart, someone who looks a whole lot like Jesus. And so the invitation is, to us, is for us to walk in the solution and the problem that God is solving in and through Christmas. Next in Christ is the fullness of God who shows us what godly power looks like. And so, my friends, any place where you've got power or authority, I want to challenge all of us, whether you're a parent, a grandparent, a boss or a manager, or just, in, like, just has influence in your neighborhood or in your volunteer association or with your friends, I want to, I want to invite and, all, and challenge all of us to use power the way that Jesus did because he is the divine one who shows us what real power looks like. And today... All kinds of people all over the globe are worshiping him, the truly divine one, the fullness of the Godhead. Next, there's no redemption without reconciliation. That is, we can't heal and restore and repair things ultimately permanently apart from being reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. The invitation challenge for all of us is to live out of that reconciliation, that we might be ambassadors, people who embody that reconciliation and bring the power of that reconciliation anywhere God sends you or puts you, right? Wherever God has you or puts you, your family, your friends, your workplace, at your school, on your soccer team, wherever God has you, the invitation and the challenge is for you to be an instrument of God's reconciliation and to bring that power of God's grace. And then finally, Sin separates us from God and God's joy, God's presence. The only way for us to be eternally happy is for us to be perfectly holy. And Merry Christmas early, Christ's gift to you is the voices that accuse or condemn you, even over things that you've done terribly wrong. Jesus has the last word over all of those things. He has come to spring you, set you free from guilt and shame, real or imagined, to bring you into his presence, to set you free to be an instrument of his grace and mercy wherever he might send you you. That is the good news of the who of Christmas. Now before we close, 
There's an interesting tag in this passage in Colossians 1 where Paul says this about kind of what the gospel is doing. He says this, this is the gospel, the good news that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven of which I, Paul, have become a servant. So the good news that Paul's celebrating is that, man, this gospel at his time in the first century, it's just moving like wildfire all throughout sort of the, the Middle East and the, and the area around. And Paul dedicates his whole life to being a servant of spreading this good news to every creature under heaven. Today, this morning, uh, we have uh, someone who's sort of stepping into that same call to be a servant of God's message going to every creature under heaven. Jerry Jung and his family had been in Asia for a number of years. They are a missionary uh, couple that we support and a family that we support. And uh, he, is, he has come in uh, from Singapore just to be here with us today. Not really, but we'll say that. Uh, and I want to uh, bring him up and, 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 and uh, do a quick interview with him that he might share a little bit about how he's a part of this good news spreading to every creature under heaven. Can you welcome Jared up as he comes on up? Welcome, Jared. Come on up. Come on up. Come on up. All right, Jared, time for the grilling session. You ready for this? So glad you're here. So glad you're here. Um, so, Jared, you were, in, uh, you were in East Asia for a while. We couldn't even, like, stream this or tell you, kind of tell people where you were for a while, but you made a move. So why don't you tell us a little about kind of that move and kind of what that move has been like for you. Yes, so two years ago I moved to Singapore. We were in a cold country in East Asia for 11 years. Uh, we couldn't stay there, and we ended up having to be relocated. And so we spent some time here in the States waiting out COVID. Awesome. Thanks, Jared. Can I see this? I don't think it's working. Yeah, is it not working? Huh? Hold it closer. Try that. You want, should we, is it, is it? No, it's on. Okay, hold on. The one I'm stealing your mic, so good. I think I try it. I don't have to see it. This one, do I? Yeah, much better. There we go. Sorry, you want to give the short version of that one more time? Sure, yeah, I could do that. The short version is we work uh, East Asia School of Theology in Singapore, um, and so there I teach theology, um, and my wife works with um, student wives um, at, at East, E-A-S-T, East Asia School of Theology, um, so we shorten it to East, but uh, we work there serving, uh, for the most part, serving theologically under-resourced uh, pastors, church leaders, ministry leaders from throughout, really throughout all of Asia. So they're all coming from other parts of Asia to Singapore to get education, basically a seminary education. Yes, yes. So right now we have nine nations represented wow. on campus. That's so, fantastic. And in a given class, I'll have uh, anywhere from five to six, seven, sometimes um, different different countries represented in class. So of those nine different nations, how many of them would be kind of closed or it's just really almost hard or impossible to be Christians? That's them? a great question. Um, so if you're in the Asian context, you're going to deal with that. So if you think of... Um, the, the way I like to measure it is um, if we look at Open Doors, uh, Open Doors is an organization that deals with persecution in churches, and you look, they have a world watch list. Maybe some of you are familiar with this. 
the top 50 countries in the world where um, it's the most dangerous to be a Christian, uh, a majority of those, like just a majority, 26, 27, are in Asia. Um, our students are coming from somewhere between five and six countries on that list, wow. and then some other countries as well that don't make the list but are still, they're just not in the top 50. But Yeah, yeah, yeah that's great. What a great resource. If you're going to sort of, how, and how long have you been at East? Two years now. Two years now. So uh, year two, uh, what, what, what would you say, what are you seeing the Lord do both at East but also as a springboard from East out into the rest of Asia? How, how would you say the Lord's at work and moving and individuals as well as kind of in the region? Sure, that's a great question. Um, and so at East, um, what we do is we bring students in. And when we think of, when you think of something like seminary training here in the U.S., you tend to think of people who either want to go into ministry, um, you tend to think of more mature Christians, people who have had a, a long background, even if it's just Sunday school teaching, Sunday school, working with youth. Um, that's a lot of who goes to seminary in the U.S. to go into the pastorate. But where I'm um, at, at East, people are coming in where they've been in ministry for years and years and years. Many of them, if you're in a persecuted context, you kind of fall into your calling. It's not something that you see really from far away, but necessity forces you there. And so they've been, whether it's pastoring churches, whether it's leading ministry, whether it's doing Christian education, they've been doing this for years with very little opportunity for training in their location. So we get to bring them in. Uh, um, we have, uh, and we do a lot of, not just not just teaching in a classroom, but we do pretty intensive uh, discipleship and mentoring with students. So all of our faculty at East um, have a long history in ministry. Um, and so we have them in what we call mentor groups, where they are, um, um, they're with faculty. Uh, we do, we're meeting with them, um, and we're, we're having just meetings about their life. What does it look like to walk with Christ? What does it look like to walk with Christ in ministry? Uh, we're being open with them about the struggles in our lives of walking with Christ in ministry. We take them on ministry trips together. So uh, in September, I was on the border. I was on the Thai border with Myanmar with a group of students um, doing ministry to refugees from the from the ongoing conflict in, in Myanmar. Um, and so we're just it, it's it's a blessing to get to work with these students and then to send them back out. And then there's there's a number who, uh, to be honest, Singapore um, it's it's becoming more and more difficult uh, to get long term visas in Singapore. Um, from a lot of the areas where our students are coming for various reasons. And so we're also working to, to take it to them uh, through our extension centers. And so we actually have uh, somewhere around 30 students that are on our campus. We have um, over 200 total, but most of our students are kind of out there. So we're, we're sometimes traveling to them, mm -hmm. doing one-week intensive classes. Sometimes we're doing just ongoing online classes and things mm -hmm. like that. What are some of the challenges you're facing right now? Yes, uh, uh, one of the biggest challenges is um, Asia was very, very slow to open. Just uh, as a whole, um, Asia was slow to open um, travel post-pandemic. And so that hit, uh, it, it hit us very hard as a seminary to not be able to bring people in for so long. And that takes time to recover. Um, and so we're just in the recovery process for that. So we have eight coming in, incoming class, I think of eight um, in January, when, when we go back and start our semester again, that's the biggest class that we've had. Oh, wow. um, and so we've had as few as two or three coming in. And so I think slowly that's trickling. But getting students on campus has definitely been more challenging mm -hmm. post-pandemic. Mm -hmm. yeah. How can we pray for you? Um, yes, yeah, so I think um, I'm, as we go back and we're going to be here through Christmas and then we're going to head back. Our semester starts right at the beginning of January. Um, just prayer for our incoming students. Again, having eight students that are incoming. We have students that are coming. Um, some of them are coming from um, areas where we, we never know if they're going to be able to go until they arrive, until they're on a plane and we oh, wow. can receive them. 
uh, because they can have their passports taken. Um, we don't know who, in their context, who's being watched by the government, uh, by authorities there, things like that. So just praying that all eight, all eight can show up. Some of them are in areas where there's ongoing violence. Um, they're coming from those kinds of areas, so they've had a trouble, trouble just getting a passport, getting to the office uh, to, to get a passport. And so there's a number that we're just we're praying everybody's there. Uh, so that's that's um, a really big one. I'm teaching a course called uh, Theology of Persecution uh, this coming semester. It's the first time it's been taught. That's kind of my area of um, research research focus. So I'm looking forward to that, but uh, really just praying for that course to be helpful to the to the students that are taking it yeah. um, to help them as the, a lot of them are going into those contexts afterwards. Absolutely. Well, can we, uh, can we pray for Jared and the good work he's doing overseas? Lord Jesus, we declare that you are Lord over Singapore and all of Asia, and uh, we rejoice in the good news of great joy that you have reconciled all peoples to yourself, and we want to pray a, an anointing over Jared and over the good work he's doing. Good Father, would you pour out your Holy Spirit on Jared and, and all the work of, of, of East Seminary that it might equip pastors and lay leaders to go and be servants in some of the hardest places on earth to be a Christian. So Lord Jesus, we want to pause and bless our brothers and sisters, particularly in Asia, who this morning are meeting in uh, basements and tunnels and in the woods to get away from uh, any prying eyes. Lord, we pray that you would protect them. We pray that this Christmas they would be able to enter into the wonders of your good news, that you would be their peace and their strength. And as Jared tries to equip pastors to have a good theology of persecution and kind of endure through that. Lord, would you give him uh, wisdom and creativity and most of all, Father, just more and more of yourself that he would offer them and equip them to be able to do this good work. Lord, would you uh, anoint Jared's work to bear much fruit across uh, the continent. And Lord, would our church be a place of blessing and sending. And we ask these things in Jesus' strong and mighty name. Amen, amen, amen. Thank you.